Welcome to Foul Players Radio, your podcast for arts, entertainment, and pop culture. My name is Michael Spedden, your host. Every episode features interesting people with fun, fascinating stories about their journeys in the performing arts. Authors, actors, dancers, writers, musicians, athletes, comics, you name it. Folks who are center stage, backstage, on camera, or behind the scenes. Sit back and listen. Let's have some fun. Foul Players Radio is a production of the Foul Players Group and a proud member of the SJ Network. And welcome to the Rising from the Ashes edition of Foul Players Radio. My name is Michael Spedden. Today we welcome actor, comedian, and writer Mark Scheffler to Foul Players Radio. Mark has got so many great stories, from his start at working in the cat skills to becoming a regular at the comedy store in Los Angeles. He starred in the role of Junior Stilo in the 1972 horror classic The Last House on the Left, and has written for many sitcoms such as Charles in Charge, The Love Boat, Who's the Boss, Sanford, Harry and the Hendersons. He has also written for movies such as How Bugs Bunny Won the West and partnered with legendary writer Sam Denhoff to write the 1993 and 1994 People's Choice Awards. He is currently planning on returning to stand-up comedy and writing a book about his life experiences. P.S. He had the greatest 10th birthday of anyone imaginable, getting to meet the Three Stooges. Official horror movie correspondent of Foul Players Radio, Alfred Guy, joined the interview, too. Subscribe for free at www.foulplayersradio.com or listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, Pocket Cast, Deezer, Listen Notes, Player FM, Podcast Index, Overcast, Castro, CastBox, or PodFriend. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Foul Players of Perryville are now booking murder mystery shows for the late summer and fall of 2021. Indoor or outdoor venues, trains, boats, office parties, fundraisers, or just for the heck of it. 443-600-0446, foulplayersperryville at yahoo.com, or see our website at www.foulplayersofperryville.com. We'll be back with Mark Scheffler right after these words. Hey, what's up, guys? It's Christopher Stolle of Breaking the Fourth Wall. If you enjoy our show, you can find it on YouTube. Just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment or just look up Realm of the Mist Entertainment on Anchor.fm, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, or wherever quality podcasts can be heard. And also, you can find us on all the social medias. Just look for Realm of the Mist Entertainment. And I will catch you on the other side. I'm Michael, the host of the semi-monthly podcast, In a City Like Yours. Join me as I chat with interesting people with interesting life stories. 
You can listen to the podcast on all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can follow us on Twitter at IACLYS Podcast, as well as on Facebook and Instagram at In a City Like Yours Podcast. Please feel free to let me know what you think and keep coming back for the many interesting stories in a city like yours. Hey, this is Don Smith from the Life Radio Show. If you've always wanted to learn more about the world of low-budget filmmaking and even lower-budget comedy, tune into the Life Radio Show. You can live stream the show at WWSU1069.org on Tuesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern. Or find us wherever you find podcasts and like and follow the Life Radio Show on Facebook for live video and other shenanigans. Hey, what's up? This is Christopher Stolle of Realm of the Mist Entertainment. The podcast you are listening to is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com. That's s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and information on those shows, as well as information and ability to contact publicist Steve Joyner for more information. Just go to the website and check out the family, ladies and gentlemen. Until then, enjoy the show. Mark Scheffler, welcome to Foul Players Radio. It's a pleasure to have you with us this evening. How are you? I'm fine, and it's a pleasure to be here. Well, great. So great. So we've been looking over your IMDB page and reading up of, you know, quite a bit about you and you're, you know, you've done quite a lot of interesting things and uh, you're into a lot of interesting things now. Of course, you know, what we were thinking is we'd start off talking about Last House on the Left and with us, we have my official horror movie correspondent of Foul Players Radio, my good friend and fellow actor, uh, Alfred Guy. Hello, everyone. Hey, Lord Alfred. Good to meet you, Mark. Oh, you got a Last House poster back behind you. <laughs> I do. I, yes, I put that up just for you. No, I just bought one. I just, I had one, an original that was mine oh, wow. from, that, you know, from the very beginning. And years ago, it got lost in a move. And yeah. I was trying to replace it. And I saw one on eBay that says it's original. So I, I, I outbid everybody else. And, nice. <laughs> you know, uh, I got it. It's on, it's on its way. It's tough to come by with it being, you know, from the seventies and stuff. So I'm, I'm glad you're able to get that. And thank you for noticing. I wanted to. Yeah, uh, listen. Uh, and, and at any time, I make this offer to you. At any time, uh, you guys are so kind to have me on your show. At any time, if you want to send that to me, I'll sign it and send it back to you. No, no oh, charge, no problem. Thank so, you. That I, I'll need to do that. That would be awesome. And then oh, I can pick, pick out pick out my frame. Thank yeah. you very much. Well, I guess Mike is gonna kind of have me get into that as being, you know, the horror correspondent. And I, I did have, I have some questions and, 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 you know, when these things come about, it's usually, you know, if I'm, if I'm watching a movie or I have an actor that I like, or have a movie that I like, there are really some interesting things that you think about when you watch a movie. And so I think my questions are geared around that, especially because of the type of movie it was very, it was the very, I guess, disturbing movie. And yeah. so in no particular oh, yeah. order, I mean, you know, I kind of jotted down some things, but in no particular order, I thought, and I'll get your interpretation of it, because I think everybody was coming from a different place, all the actors, about how much they were into it, or they saw it as a positive or negative experience. And I was wondering, I watched um, an interview 
And it was said that some of the actors, they were really afraid. Some of them kind of regretted being involved. And some of them were, you know, really into it. And some of them were very method. And but I didn't get a lot on your perspective on that. Where did you fall in between because of the subject matter? Um, well, how did you feel about it? Okay. So you're asking me how I felt about it, not how I feel about it, right? You t- how you're you felt me. about it. Okay. Yes, how you felt about it. All right. So you got to imagine uh, 20 years old, about to be 21, doing, I had just come off, I'd worked in the Catskill Mountains as the stage manager of the Raleigh Hotel for about a year. And from there, I had a job that lasted a year also. I worked for a comedian by the name of London Lee back in, I was his, I started out as his uh, driver, road manager. And then I wrote a couple of jokes for him that really worked on stage. And I, at the same time, I was going to the city and in New York and working on my yeah. own stand-up act. And, and then I, I evolved into becoming part of his act. And I stayed with him for, like I said, about a year, ending up with two weeks co-headlining the Copacabana with Jackie DeShannon. So I quit working with London and decided to step out on my own. So this, I'm now like 20, 21 years old, right? 20, 21 years old. So I go, I'm going around to New York. I, I have a, an agent who's sending me around to auditions. And, and then I lock on to a manager and I lock on to the same manager who was handling Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck at the time, Dick Towers, who worked with Lloyd Greenfield, Lloyd Greenfield Associates in Rockefeller Center. The reason I'm giving you all this background is sure. because it's really important in our business when you're the talent that you have people behind you. And because rarely does anyone get anything by themselves. 99.9% there's somebody or some company or some agent or manager or somebody behind you, you know, pushing like George yeah. Shapiro was for Jerry Seinfeld. Right. And, and that's, a, that's a crystal clear example. So I had these guys as my managers who were helping me with my standup. And one day I, I, I uh, uh, walked into Dick's office at, uh, in Rockefeller center. And he said, I have a movie audition for you. And I said, uh, okay. So he said, gives me a dress. And he says, go down. It's on 45th Street between 5th and 6th. This is a sweet number. Go in there and you'll see two guys. Uh, one's name is Wes and one's name is Sean. And just tell them I sent you. And you're laughing because you know who I'm talking about, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, so so um, I go and I do the audition. And by the time I come back, they had already called Dick and said, you know, that's our junior. You know, so um, to answer your question, I was thrilled. Mm-hmm. I had never made a movie before. I was suddenly not an out of work actor. Uh, I was doing a film. So, you know, you build you, you at least I did. And I guess I continue to do um, the moment something really good happens. We we mythologize it to ourselves. Right. We we create. Uh, a story, a, a, a blanket around uh, that that shows everything in its best light. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, it's all epic. You know, because like porn actresses don't like wake up and drive to work thinking I'm sucking dicks today. They they go to work and say uh, I'm doing you know uh, sexual art, or they they mythologize it. You know, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, I know because Sasha Gray is a friend of mine, and I I she doesn't think 
in the gutter. She's a very smart uh, a woman. And so we, and she's done a brilliant job of mythologizing herself. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. So we mythologize it, right? So now I said to myself, well, what the hell, you know, uh, it's a movie. I'm making a movie. And there was that, there was that kind of um, raw uh, energy that I, that I, that I felt in myself. And I love the people that I was doing it with, you know, uh, uh, David Hess, who played my father in the film, he and I became like instant friends. And Mm -hmm. he he was like the, ended up being in my life, the big brother I never had because I was the oldest. Right. We stayed friends until the day I got the call that he passed away. Uh, Marty Cove and I became friends and it was Marty Cove who got David the, the audition for last house. And Marty and I have stayed friends and, and that, you know, I'm, we're friends. I'm, I'm 71 years old. I know Marty since I'm 20. So, you know, 51 years. So, you know, as far as how I felt about, I feel about the film, uh, um, my feelings have changed over the years. Uh, uh, when we all first saw it, is it okay if I ramble on like this? Sure. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. No, no, please, no. Please. Like I said, I'm my own favorite subject, so I'll talk <laughs> about myself. So we we saw the uh, film for the first time completed, an answer, what's called an answer print, right? It's, uh, mm-hmm. it's the final product. We saw it at a screening room in, uh, at, on Ninth Avenue, a filmway screening room, like Ninth way on the west side. And we came out of it. And David and Freddie and I, I remember the three of us kind of walking out of it, just looking at each other and just fucking <laughs> laughing, just going, no one's ever going to see this piece of shit. You know, no one is ever. And Freddie agreed. Yeah, man, no one's going to see it. And David, yeah, fuck them. I just, you know, it's just music was good because David wrote all the music, right? He did a brilliant job. But we, we thought no one was ever going to see it. So come the release of it, what happens is it goes out. You know, it was, it was paid for by Hallmark Releasing, uh, a company that owned a bunch of drive-ins in, in uh, Massachusetts and Boston, okay. area, Boston area. So they funded the film. And uh, once it was finished, they started to put it in their drive-ins. And I, I, I really don't have a reckoning of, of what kind of business it was doing, right? It was doing okay. It was, do, you know, it was on a bill and with like three other films and, you know, nothing like Last House. but it was it, it was fulfilling their their mandate in putting up the hundred grand to sure. do it. So one one day I wake up and David's David and I were sharing an apartment at the time and his phone starts ringing off the hook and he he keeps saying what what no I haven't seen it well yeah I'll go get it I'll I'll go find it yeah apparently what happened was that was the day that Roger Ebert wrote that three and a half out of four star review of mm-hmm. that house, right? And suddenly, like literally overnight, we went from being a film that was, you know, uh, uh, a sound a soundtrack to submarine races at drive-ins to, to uh, mm-hmm. uh, being like one of the most talked about films in the country. And I believe, I'd have to look at the stats, but I believe for like a 10 day or two week period, it was a top 10 film in the United States. It, would, wow. it, had received, it had received so much attention because of that Roger Ebert review that yeah. it went mainstream. And 
suddenly all over New York, there were posters of Last House because they were moving it out of the drive-ins and into the higher ticket price mainstream theaters, right? So, so uh, um, David and I would walk around New York and there would be pictures of Krug, you know, these, these silhouette one-sheets uh, one of Krug holding the machete. And we would just like laugh. We would just, think, <laughs> how did this shit happen, man? You know? <laughs> no, it's like, it's like, I'm 21 and this is going on. And back, I'm, wor I'm, I'm working on a TV show right now. Uh, uh, I've written the pilot and I'm, I'm waiting to hear if we can sell it. But it takes place in, 19, in Pittsburgh where I grew up. And starts in 1963 when I was uh, 14 years old. So the long story is the, the long and short of it is uh, um, my dad was an aluminum siding salesman, like a really fast talking, slick mohair, silk mo mohair suit, Cadillac drive and aluminum siding salesman. A tin and, man. Yeah. Yeah. Man, the man had titanium balls. It, it, the things that I used to watch it, but that's in my book and it's part of my show. Anyway, his cousin, his first cousin, was the general manager of the Stanley Warner Theaters in the Pittsburgh area. So it had Pittsburgh, Ohio, and West Virginia, parts of Ohio, and all of West Virginia. His office was in this beautiful kind of carved out, ornate, gargoyle-laden old theater in downtown Pittsburgh called the Stanley. You know, the kind, the Baroque theaters with all the paintings and all the shit, and the giant stages. Yeah. They used to hold stage shows that were then. Yeah. So this was modeled after that. And Larry, his name was Larry Nee, and his office was there. And we were cousins. So we used to go to all the theaters for free. Well, I had this, I had to say this thing. I would tell my dad every time we would go to the Stanley. And that was, dad, one of these days, I'm going to be in a movie that's going to be on this uh, screen. And he would look at me and my, you know, aluminum siding salesman, uh, people who literally uh, uh, make money out of nothing, right? Uh, 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 cut it out of whole cloth would say to me, if you want it badly enough, it'll happen. So seven years later, Last House opens up in Pittsburgh, and guess where it opens up? Uh -huh. At the Stanley. Oh, and wow. I remember going to the theater to the opening in a limo with my father and him just shaking his head, just laughing. Just <laughs> except for the part where I blow my brains out. He couldn't watch that. <laughs> oh, geez. he just couldn't. He just yeah. he literally could not get up and walk out of the theater. Mm. So the 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 thing is that that. This thing happened, right? And back in Pittsburgh, uh, there were girls in my high school graduating class that would not give me the time of day. <laughs> I was there, right? However, when I came back to Pittsburgh to, because, uh, uh, you know, the PR people made a big deal out of it. They brought Pittsburgh Boy. It's opening at the Stanley. They had interviews. I was on t local TV. You know, they they did exactly what you see happen with actors who are in movies, right? Who go to go to towns to promote it, and apparently, that it has some kind of effect on these girls, and they were literally standing in line to drop their pants, and 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 um, I remember being with one of them, and while it was going on, I kept thinking to myself, I believe I've made a correct career decision. <laughs> <laughs> This seems to be what I want to do. <laughs> you know, so, so 
what the, yeah, but you see, there's a, everything that, that rises goes down, right? And it, it leads to how I became a writer, if you guys want to go down that road, because uh, they're, sure. they're connected. Okay. Yeah, uh, yeah, you you I'm so okay, enjoying so, it. Go. So, okay, so uh while I was in New York working, I I would go around and do a bunch of commercials, right? I mean, I'd get commercial auditions. And mm-hmm. I never, you know, I never got any, uh but I went I kept I'd go once or twice a week to an audition. And one of my favorite places to go was uh, a company called N. Lee Lacey uh in the 60s on the on the east side. Lee Lacey, do you guys remember uh, or know about that Mean Joe Green Coke commercial? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Enley Lacey, the guy who owned this company, was the commercial director who directed that uh, uh, commercial and won a Clio for it. Sure. Okay, so I, I used to go and audition for Lee uh, a lot. Never got anything. He was a really cool guy, one of the coolest guys I've ever known in my life. Still, he remains like one of the hippest, coolest guys ever. Uh, so. Um, you know, uh, I do last house and for two weeks or so, uh, it's, it's, it's like a marathon and then it disappears. And that's something on my street. I'm sorry about that. It's some, it disappears. And all of a sudden I can't find a date, right? Like shit, shit just dried up like the desert, just dried up. So one night I'm at a party and um, I see a guy, kind of a squirrely looking guy uh, in a turtleneck, and he's talking to this really, really hot model looking girl. And what I, I, I kind of, she's, in, she's like wrapped up in it, man. And I, I walk over and I kind of listen and he's telling her, you know, he's a writer and uh, he's working on a, a concept and he's fleshing it out and he's got, you know, contacts in California on the coast. and. He's using all these words. And I think to myself, and the girl is like totally wrapped up. He ends up leaving with her. So I thought to myself, I can do that. I can tell girls I'm a writer, right? That'll work. So I went out and I bought a bunch of books on writing. And uh, <laughs> I, I, learned, I learned words like plot and narrative, <laughs> dialogue, outline, uh, denouement. Uh, I learned all these words and I went around the parties and I, I, I kind of like had this rap and it was doing fine. You know, I didn't have to do anything. I just spin this shit and, you know, wham, bam. Right. It was the 60s sexual revolution in the 70s. It, you know, things were things were working in my favor. So I was at an audition at Lee's place. And I see this girl and I start spinning my thing. And it's working as usual. So Lee comes out of the room and he's listening. And the girl leaves. I had her number. And he turns to me and he says, hey, you know, I have an office in Los Angeles. I'm interested in what you said. I'd like to hear that, read that when you finish it. (laughs) I said to him, man to man, dude, you know, I'm not really writing anything. I, I just do this for girls. That's all. I just do it for girls. And he looked at me and he said, is it working? I said, oh, yeah, man, all the time, like a charm. And he said, you moron. He said, if you can get women to drop their pants because of words that are come out of your mouth, you're using that power for the wrong purpose. <laughs> Write that script and then let me have it. So 
I took his, I, he was a really cool guy. And I ended up doing one commercial with him, a Metropolitan Life Assurance commercial. And he, he um, said, so I gave it to him. I wrote it. I just sat down and wrote it. I, I got books on screenwriting and I knew what a script looked like. And I just wrote it. So what happens is he gives it to his agent in Los Angeles who sells it to NBC. And I moved to California with an agent having just written a script and yowza, you know, it's like I'm, I'm there and I have a car and an apartment and, and Marty picked me up uh, uh, and showed me the town, Marty Cove and in, in a, okay. he was working, mm-hmm. he was out here a couple of years already working and yeah. he shows up to pick me up in like a Mercedes convertible. And that was it, you know? So yeah, that's, see, that's the thing, man. People, people who have interesting, you get, you get there, you get there on something, you know, like there was never a dead stop with me. It was like, I didn't arrive in LA, you know, and, and I've never had a real job in my entire life. Well, I taught screenwriting and television writing at Loyola Marymount university for five years, but since I never graduated from college, and I got that job. I don't consider that a real job. That's a job that's kind of an extension of what I do. No, it's yeah. like uh, I, I've, I, I realized when I was a kid that what I really wanted to live like as an adult was I wanted to live like a teenager with a really big allowance. And, <laughs> okay. and, and that's where I am. I'm, I'm 71 chronologically, but about 1920 uh emotionally you know oh hey nothing wrong with that no there isn't no there isn't that at all okay did i answer their question okay yeah (laughs) you you answered you answered many questions and that was that was just great i mean to to be able to kind of like just see what you um going through and how your career is going it was see that's the thing that's that's why i decided to write the book The, the title of my book is as luck would have it right subtitled uh, the story of my uh, very successful mediocre career, <laughs> <laughs> because because you don't really see that's what a lot of people don't understand. You don't really have to have like a superstar career mm-hmm. in L.A. in Hollywood to live really well, mm-hmm. being being a professional. You don't have to like I always I never worked on any really big hit hit shows, but I always worked, you know and. Mm-hmm. The money's the same, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. It's a good it, point. It's a, it, it's the same. So, you know, I, I I just decided to write about how at every turn in my life, every time something good happened, I could slip in that phrase, as luck would have it. You know, as as luck would have it, you know, uh, uh, I, I went to the Catskills and got a job. As luck would have it, the guy who was supposed to do the, the job that I ended up with didn't show up and I conned my way into getting it. So, you know, every, every, at every juncture, at every crossroads, uh, I can say as luck would have it. So I'm, I'm a one grateful, uh, uh, motherfucker, man. That's just, you know, one grateful guy. Looks like you took advantage of those opportunities without hesitation and it probably helped too. That was the aluminum siding salesman father who taught me to spot an opportunity and to ha- and how to take yes for an answer. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One of the greatest lessons my, fa- my, my father taught me because he knew because I used to go in those houses with him, man. 
He knew when that sale was nailed and he didn't say shit afterwards. He was not going to talk mm-hmm. them out of the deal after having talked them into it. Right. That's one of the greatest lessons my father ever taught me was how to take yes for an answer. Wow. Wow. That's awesome. So um, it, I, I'll, I'll um, change gears a little bit. Um, sure. You had mentioned that um, the, the whole soundtrack, all the music, um, because Dave, David wrote all of that. Every bit of it. So, and, you know, unfortunately, you can't get it from him because he's gone. But I was wondering, this is my interpretation of it, because I'm like a spectator. I'm watching the movie. Um, it seemed to me that there were two elements that maybe tried to give the viewer of this disturbing film some momentary release from all the violence. Right. And I think one, I think, was the soundtrack, in my opinion. And the other was the kind of bumbling police officers. Right. You know, <laughs> kind of like a little bit here and there. And would you, you know, agree with that? And oh, absolutely. That was intentional? Wes, yes. Wes knew, you know, if you if you think of movies like this, like roller coasters, right? Uh, uh, using that, that, you know, structure, you yeah. go up slowly up the lift hill and then plunge down. But you have to give the audience a chance to recover and you have to give them a chance to process and a chance to breathe. And what Wes did was he used uh, uh, Marty and Marshall uh, uh, as that device. Yeah. 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 That's that's the way that's the way I felt about watching it. And I think I think that really helped me watching it for my first time because I was probably about 10 and. I, it was, it was, I, you know, can't, you can't really recall how you felt, but I know that I was watching something. It almost felt like I was watching something that really happened. Well, that was and, the thing uh, um, you, you know, one, one of the, the um, interesting aspects of last house is that kind of semi-documentary uh, kind of window into a horrible crime. Right. Yeah. And yeah. What, what played into that, was that none of us were known actors and we nobody knew who we were. So like you go to a movie and you see Brad Pitt in it. Brad Pitt's a terrific actor. He's spectacular, yeah. right? Yeah. He really is. He's a fine, fine actor. But you're always aware it's Brad Pitt, right? Of course, yeah. yeah. You're aware of it. You just, you can't not be. It's Brad Pitt, right? So, so, but with us in Last House, nobody knew who we were. So we kind of remove that suspension of disbelief thing because they didn't audience didn't have to process who we were playing these guys we were just those guys you were yeah you were them wow yeah yeah I, that, I, that was a huge part of it i agree with that and if i could jump in there because the thing was was that with you being unknown actors you, know, you guys were you know a bunch of hippies you know dirty hippies and exactly. you were not somebody like i mean you were not like um you know, somebody who was an actor back then who was known as being clean cut and everybody had seen him and everything. Yeah. And they know that, you know, they dressed him up like that. You know, you guys were unknown all of a sudden, you know, it made it, I think very believable because you're not like, Oh, that's just somebody dressed up, you know? Oh, who is this? There's a a certain uh, immediacy to last house. Mm -hmm. There's an emotional immediacy to it Mm -hmm. because it's happening right now. You know, it, it's the, the, the audience is 
always in the now. There, there are no flashbacks. There's no bullshit. There's no backstory. The backstory, right. Sean, is, is, is the, the audio uh, voiceover that Sean does at the beginning of the film uh, that's coming out of the radio. That's it. You know, escape killers on the loose. Look the fuck out, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so that's the whole backstory of the film. So everything happens in real time. And in real time, there's, there's, you can almost hear the ticking, you know, mm-hmm. when things are happening in real time. You can hear the clock ticking forward. And Wes, Wes's goal, uh, were, goals, plural, were fairly simple. He wanted to take uh, violence, movie violence, screen violence, that had been kind of whitewashed and, and put in the background and throw it in people's faces. And say, hey, you want to be violent? This is what it really looks like. This is it. Mm-hmm. This is this is it. And and only years later, and I mean years later, when when uh, I was too old to be a dumb person, uh, uh, did I realize that that there was a real turning point in the film. And and for me, that's it may not be for anyone else, but as a screenwriter and somebody who now has kind of an educated opinion. The dinner scene in the uh, Collingswood house is when class, then we understand that it's class warfare, Uh that, that these are like evil stooges, uh, the Krug and his people. They're, they're people who are like outside of society. And in that scene, if you ever, if you go back and look at it, you'll see how it's shot completely in black, except for the faces and the people. Uh And that little sequence for me sets up that's the end that 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 for me is the end of the Collingwoods. that scene por- uh, portends their their demise because mm-hmm. uh, um the next scene after that is krug and sadie in the bedroom i'm in the bathroom vomiting but krug and sadie in the bedroom and, and with weasel and they're talking about krug is very angry you know that that these are who are these people you know with their forks and their this and that i mean he's making he's he's angry that he's not them and that he knows that they're decent good people and that he's not and his only uh recourse is to eliminate them so that he eliminates the problem mm-hmm. so yeah i get that i guess that's that's like the high muckety bucks in the three stooges yes versus the ho- versus the hoi polloi yeah i use wow. the stooges I use the Three Stooges as an example because uh, I have a personal story with him. Again, as luck would have it, right? Um, when I was 10 years old, my dad, as I've described him to you, right, said to yes. me, what do you want for your birthday? And I said, the Three Stooges. And he got, <laughs> and he got them for me. Uh, they, they were a couple of months after my birthday. My birthday is in September. In January <laughs> uh, 1959, they were uh, playing uh, um, a two-week gig at the Holiday House, a nightclub that used to be in Pittsburgh. Outside. Right, right. So what my dad did was he threw a birthday party for me on a Saturday afternoon, paid the Stooges their a fee, and they performed. And uh, I had about 60 friends and their family, their parents, and to a private party at the club. And during the, the, the performance, uh, out of nowhere, Mo uh, uh, says, uh, well, we're here to celebrate Mark's birthday. I want to bring Mark up on stage with us. 
If he wants to come up, can Mark, you want to come up on stage? I don't really know the definition of a nanosecond, mm-hmm. but <laughs> I believe it's greater than the time it took me to hear what Mo said <laughs> and get up on the stage. Uh, um, so there I was on the stage. Now I knew all of their shit, right? Because every day after school for years, I'd come home, get out of my school clothes, get in front of the TV and watch uh, a four o'clock to five o'clock marathon of three Stooges uh, shorts. So I knew everything. I knew every physical bit and I could see Mo was like surprised so much so that during the thing, he puts his hand on my head and dubs me the fourth Stooge. Right. Wow. So, and I have pictures, I have some pictures. So, so, so there I am on stage. I'm 10 years old. Lights are in my eyes. I can feel the audience, but I can't see them. I'm on stage with the fucking three stooges and I hear laughter coming back. And it hits me physically like, you know, sound is a pressure wave. Right. Mm -hmm. So this laughter and applause that was going on, I felt physically it was this warm blanket. It was this comforting thing. Mm -hmm. And that was the probably as I look back. Uh, that was the, the moment I decided that being on stage was going to be my life. Because this was like, it was like a fucking emotional heroin high, man. It was, you know, I've been chasing, chasing the laughter ever since, ever since chasing that moment. Uh, because nothing ever felt better than that. Nothing. And still nothing. And I've had great blowjobs. Nothing, nothing <laughs> ever felt better than that. Than that feeling, than that, that embrace from an audience. So I'm sure I'm sure that's in your book with pictures, right? It's going to yes. be. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We have to we have to, we have to you know, be in touch with you. I, I definitely want to get your book. Oh, yeah. yeah I will a- absolutely. You know, you guys have my email address. Send me, you know, I'll send you my my address. If you ever want to send it to me, uh, I, I'll sign it. If you want me to sign it to you. Fine. If not, I just sign my name and send it back to you. Happy awesome. To do it. Awesome. I'll send a couple of pictures along with it. Oh, that's incredible. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. No, so, go ahead, please. So, um, well, this is, this is great. I, I wanted to ask a couple of other questions here. You, um, you, so you, know, you went from, you know, doing last house, that was your, your main movie role that you had. And then you, you got, went into writing and you did quite a bit for TV. Um, when, when I was introduced to you, one thing that you did mention was, um, how bugs bunny won the West and you yes. had, I believe mentioned, I think Mel Blanc and stuff with it. Had you, did you have a, anything you'd like to share about that experience? Okay. So I had an agent at the time named Beth Uffner. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, no, no. How Bugs Bunny? That was that Beth Uffner worked at Warner brothers. My agent was Jane Sindel at William Morris. And she, she calls me up and I had met Beth. One of the things agents do mm-hmm. good agents uh, with new writers uh, is right before pilot season, like a month before pilot season, if they have a writer they really like, they set up meetings at studios and networks that are like introductory meetings where you where there's there's no sh- nothing involved, like no no project, but you go in and you say hello, and the agent and that that executive have a a, a working and probably personal re- relationship, so they t- they have the meeting because it's 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 a courtesy, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, Jane was very, very well connected and sent me around to a whole lot of places. And 
pretty much everybody was, I, I was well received. So one day, and one of the people she sent me to was a woman named Beth Uffner, who later became uh, an agent at Broder Curlin Webb and Uffner. Uh, um, and Beth and I got along. She was a terrific executive. One day, Jane calls me and says, uh, how'd you like to write for Bugs Bunny? And I said, uh, sure. You know, okay, what, what is it? So she tells me about the special for CBS. And she said, it's over at Warner Brothers. And Beth Uffner is one of the executives. And um, all you have to do is go meet Frank Barton, the president of Warner's TV, and, and uh, let him okay you. And it's a done deal. And I said, okay. So they set the meeting. And um, Beth, uh, uh, they call me before the meeting. And they say, look, Frank's a germaphobe. So you come into the, uh, uh, his office, don't go shake hands with him. Just, you know, say hi. It's going to be a short meeting. Uh, you know, just say hi and we'll leave. And that's that. I say, yeah, no problem. Ever the troublemaker. Uh, day of the meeting comes and I go in and there's Frank Barton behind his desk. And Beth says, uh, Frank, this is the young writer we talked to you about, the one we want to use on the Bugs Bunny special, uh, Mark Scheffler. Uh, he comes highly recommended from Jane Sindel, whom you know. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Nice to meet you, he said to me. And I walked right up to his desk and I stuck my hand out. And I, and I said, you too, Frank. And as reluctant as he was, he shook hands with me. I shook hands with him. Nice, firm, you know, mm -hmm. handshake. And to the extraordinary shock of everybody in the room. And he looked at me and he said, uh, are you excited about this job? And I said, yes, sir, I am. And I'll do a good job for you, I promise. And he said, okay, that's all I need. Shook hands and that was it. And I walked out and I got the job. You know, obviously I got the job. But uh, so I did it and there I was. I was, I was screening like 150 Bugs Bunny cartoons. Oh yeah. Over, over the course of like two weeks. And, uh, you've, have you, have you ever seen it? Oh, a long time ago. Okay. So, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's cartoons that existed mm -hmm. that I took pieces of and constructed mm -hmm. a separate story around. And then I wrote interstitial narrative for a, a, a cowboy actor by the name of Denver Pyle, who we shot, oh. uh, on the, uh, Warner brothers backlot. Oh, sure. So, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was pretty cool. That that's that particular uh, uh, project in the residual world has been very good to me. Oh, good, good. Yeah, that's yeah. always good to hear. The animation. Here's the thing: animation. There's no residuals for animation. It's a weird thing. However, because we had live action, it got covered under the residual formula. So Is that right. Yeah, because we shot. We have a lot, lot of live action in it. So. Hmm. You know, as luck would have it, right? There you go. Mm -hmm. There you oh, go. That's awesome. That's awesome. I guess. Um, yeah, I, I guess that was a pretty interesting job too, because I'm sure that you, you know, had to know the, uh, had to know the different cartoon characters and what they would say, what they wouldn't that's, say, and things. So, so in my first creative meeting, I believe the gentleman's name was Will Gear. I'd have to look at the credits, but I think it was something Gear, Bill Gear, Will Gear. Not the actor, but he sent me. Oh, oh right. Uh, um, um, who was the executive producer? Who ran 
the creative side of the Bugs Bunny division of Warner Brothers at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so I went into his office and he had life-size plush uh, uh, stuffed caricatures of every Warner Brothers cartoon. And when I say life-size, I mean like a, a five and a half, six foot uh, Bugs, uh, a Daffy Duck that was human size. I mean, literally all yeah. around the office. And he was kind of a character himself who, who spoke in telegrams. And that's when I learned that cartoons are written in telegrams, that dialogue in cartoons are, is the absolute shortest it can be. It's literally subject, verb, object, next sentence, right? It's, and that's, that's where I learned that. So yeah, it was a, it was a wonderful, you know, I've had these experiences that are just amazing. That's great. That's great. And I can imagine too, um, you know, having to, you know, be ready for the character and everything, I guess, did you have to kind of think about how the voice was going to come out too? Um, you know, how, how Mel Blanc was going oh, yeah. to, uh, of course, you know, I, I, that's the way I write dialogue is I actually have to hear it in the character's voice in my head mm-hmm. before I can put it down on the page. Mm-hmm. Sure, uh, sure. I got I got to be able to hear it, and, and believe me, there are times when I don't hear it. I sit here staring at the screen, mm-hmm. but mostly I can hear it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like when you do jokes on stage; you have to hear the rhythm of the joke. If you don't hear the rhythm of the joke, you have no chance of getting a laugh. Oh yeah, yeah. Because it, it, you can't be off, or you can't be you can't deliver it awkwardly. Right. It's got to be like, you know, boom, 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 boom. It's got to have that. It's, it's got to hit the audience just correct, just right. I know. You saw the El Yid video, right? Uh, yes, I did. Yes, I did. Okay. So clearly that's just acting because it's not me, right? So, right. right. So, but, but that character has his own music. His words has his own rhythm. Yes. So when I write, when I write for that character, I hear his voice, not my voice, mm-hmm. not, not my sensibility or my rhythm. I hear his rhythm mm-hmm. in my head and right. it kind of comes out, you know, on my keyboard uh, uh, in, in his style. Right, right, right. So, um, you, you have quite a few other credits here. I was looking at, you've written for a number of award shows. I bet that was a job, huh? It was, um, always fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was always because it was, um, it was always like a lot of work, hang out with a lot of celebrities and, and, the night of the show is always a thrill because mm-hmm. it's it's really like like a Broadway opening only for one night. It's like mm-hmm. everything is done really well. Yeah. So so um, I I've had some fun. I've had I've had met some very interesting people in in, in those shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, Don Misher, who executive produced the People's Choice Awards, the the most spectacular uh, you know event producer, just the nicest guy, easy to work with. And some of the talents has been a little, um, <clears throat> I'll tell you a story. You know, Faye, who Faye Dunaway is, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. I just, I ask because I never assume anything. <laughs> uh, uh, so Don knocks on our door. I, my, my writing, again, as luck would have it, my writing partner for about 10 years was a older a guy, 10 years older than me. His name was Sam Denoff, a very famous TV writer. Yes. I've heard of him. Yeah. Okay. So Sam, but. But when I was a kid, Sam was a was one of the original writers of the Dick Van Dyke Show, and right, uh, right, and he he and his then partner uh, Bill Persky created that girl from Marla Thomas, right? Yes, yes. So, 
when I was a kid, the Dick Van Dyke show was a show that really made me want to be a comedy writer because who, who wouldn't want to live that life? Right. Oh yeah. <laughs> right. And I real I, my favorite episodes were written by a comedy team, Bill Persky and Sam Denoff. Uh-huh. So I knew Sam's name when I was a kid. Then I grow up and I, I moved to LA and one day I get a call from a buddy of mine who's a senior VP at, at Stu Sheslow, who's a VP at, at uh, NBC. And this is after I'd been working for a few years. And he, he called me up and he said, hey, Brandon, that was Brandon, late Brandon Tartikoff, uh, who was the president of the network at the time. He said, hey, Brandon wants to introduce you to somebody. Uh, and I said, really, who? He said, Sam Denoff. I said, are you fucking kidding me? He said, no. He said, uh, uh, he's arranging a lunch for the two of you. So I met Sam and I I remember meeting him and like on the way to the meeting, thinking to myself, how is this even fucking possible? (laughs) How is this like, how is this even fucking possible that years ago I'd sit in front of a TV set in Pittsburgh, look at a screen, see somebody's name whose work I admired and I knew was good. And now I'm going to meet this person. (laughs) What a fucking country, you know? So, yeah. yeah. So again, as luck would have it. Right. So I meet Sam and a few years later, he and I had become good friends and he became a mentor of mine. And then uh, George Shapiro, who manages Jerry Seinfeld also managed Sam. Right. Uh, we decide that we're going to be partners. You know, George thinks it's a great idea and uh, we, we become partners mm-hmm. and suddenly I am partners with a childhood hero. Oh, that, 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 that had to have been amazing. That had it's to have been amazing. amazing. <laughs> yeah. You know, didn't he yeah. also, didn't the two of them also write that Louise <clears throat> show? Uh, Lots yes. of luck. Yes. I remember Lots that, that they, they showed that recently on antenna TV for a while. That was great. That yeah. Great. And, um, that's, yeah, that, that, that's very interesting. And then you also worked with, uh, who's the boss and Charles in charge, a couple of yeah. 80s staples there. Oh yeah. Uh, um, quite a I few can't... episodes of Charles in charge I see. And, um, yeah, so, 10 episodes of Charles in charge. Yeah. Yeah. That's about right. And, um, so did you, I guess you're know, doing those, were they consecutive episodes? Um, I no, mean, no, no, no. Have, I, no, we did like, um, uh, one out of every three okay. for, for about a season or mm-hmm. actually more than a season, about a season and a half, but one out of every three episodes was ours at the time. Okay. Okay. I was just curious about that because a lot of times like each season of a TV show has kind of a, I mean, they have different episodes where different things happen, but there is sort of like a central there's an, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's a narrative. A it's called an arc. It's like a narrative arc throughout right. that season. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Interesting. And, um, so you're, you've been, um, doing, you've done so many different things over your career. And, uh, you had mentioned to me now that you are looking at a return to stand up after, you know, I have been. Yeah. yeah. I, I have been, um, I was in a very bad accident in 2015. Oh, uh, after, a an extraordinary 10 day trip, Thanksgiving trip to New York and Boston vacation that my wife and I took. Mm-hmm. We're back in Los Angeles. And on the 30th of November of 2015, 
I was walking home from a Trader Joe's in our neighborhood. And I, we live in, uh, well, we, we live in two places now, but our Toluca Lake place. Um, and uh, I got hit by a car. Ooh. I, I got I got really slammed. I was walking home and a guy uh, uh, came up behind me doing about 40 miles an hour and just hit me from behind, knocked me up in the air, spun me around, uh, and my head ended up in his dash, in his uh, windshield. Oh I had like cracks here, cracks in my neck, just, I would, you know, like lots of broken bones, a bad, you know, knee, tremendous shit. However, and, and I go back to the theme of my life is luck would have it. Mm. The guy who hit me was this really, really old, really, really rich white guy driving a fucking Porsche Panamera who was talking on his cell phone while he hit me. Mm. And I and I and while I never recommend uh, anyone to get hit by a car, I can tell you if you're going to get hit by a car, get hit by a really, really rich, really, <laughs> really old white guy who was driving a Porsche Panamera while talking on a cell phone. <laughs> mm. Okay. That's all I can say. Uh, mm. So in my recovery, I'm in the hospital and uh, they, they give you seriously uh, powerful drugs, pain medication when you're in the hospital and you're that cracked up. Right. Mm-hmm. And every course of pain medication that I took, took the same direction. I get the medication. I start, you know, I'd start to feel like really warm and sleepy and inside my head. Uh, I would go back to like 1977 when I was doing stand up at the comedy store regularly from 77 through like 82. Mm-hmm. And cause I'm an original paid regular there. I'm, I'm one of that group of people uh, like Letterman and Jay Leno and Robin mm-hmm. Williams and Billy Crystal and Richie Lewis. Uh, I'm an original. I was there before the strike working there and I was there after the strike. So that group of us, the class of 77, you know, I'm one of the, my name's been on the wall for 40 some years. Uh, so I'm, I'm one of that original crew. So I would get, and, and to tell you that that was a magic time is to say, I'll just give you like the, the, the broad strokes of my day. I had a house in Laurel Canyon, uh, uh, right above Sunset Boulevard. Okay. A really cool little house stuck away in an alley, just very, very secluded Hollywood house. I'd get up around noon. I'd smoke a joint write a few jokes, go down to Schwab's pharmacy, have lunch with Murray Langston, who's the unknown comic. Oh, I love him. Johnny Dark, uh, Steve Landisberg. Oh, yeah. uh, A couple of people. We sit there and have, you know, then I come home and I take a nap and I wake up, smoke another joint, maybe make something deep, maybe not. Take a shower, get dressed, hop in my car, go to the comedy store, do a set hang out, see if there are any women there. Maybe yes, maybe no. If not, go down to the improv, party with Robin, party with Jay Leno, party party with Richie Lewis, hang out, come home. I mean, and then, you know, wake up at noon and start that shit all over again, five days a week. This is literally what I would do all the time. I do nothing but write jokes mm. and 
uh, smoke pot and uh, go out and do sets. That's it. That's all I would do. Mm. And what is not to, you know, at a certain point in your life for as long as that lasts, that's a pretty interesting existence oh, because yeah. it's productive because I was there, <laughs> right? I had an agent was sending me out. I was going, I was getting jobs. I was working on variety shows. I was starting a career. I was really, it was, but that was, that was kind of like the pro forma schedule of my day. Sometimes I'd have a meeting in between some days, you know, sometimes for five or six weeks, I had to go work on a show uh, uh, temporarily and do something. So if I was living that life, man, that, 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 you know, I'm a teenager with a really big allowance. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was just that's, living it. Yeah. That's what it's, that's so, really, um, I, I absolutely love that age of, uh, Hollywood comedy. Oh yeah. That yeah. was just so, so many greats came out of that era. Um, because, because we were, you know, we were, there were some really funny people. Uh, so, so, so you're talking about stand up. So I decided that after I got better and I could move around that I would go to the comedy store and hang out and maybe get up and do. So I went and, you know, it, I got depressed because I, I knew that the producer, the, the, the part of me that's rational, the very small part of me that's rational, uh, said, you know, no one's going to listen to you. You're just this old guy. You know, you had your fun. It's now, you know, now the, the game is somebody else's. Just be grateful for what you had. And that's that. So I said, okay. Now I put it away. And, and I put it, then I, I couldn't stop, you know, just, just, so I went back to the comedy store a few months later and I got the same feeling. And I said, no one's going to listen. No one's going to give a shit, man. You're just an old guy with a fucking beard. You're not a household name. I'm not even a household name in my own household. So what? <laughs> my wife always says, who are you again now? What? Your name is what? So, so um, again, I put her to rest. I said, no, I can't do it. It's just too much. So one day I was in the shower and just beating the shit out of myself. Fucking old, you know, it's like, yeah, so what? So you're immature, so what? You know, who cares? You're just as good. I got out of the shower and I kept looking at myself in the mirror, just beating the shit out of myself. You're a skinny old piece of shit, you know, no one cares. And then all of a sudden, you know, my beard was wet. It was long because I hadn't shaved in a while. And and it was long. And I, I, I looked at myself and I said, don't go away. Be right back. So I ran into my closet and I put on a black suit, a white shirt and a black tie. And I have a collection of hats, one of which is, you know, many of which are fedoras, right? Like the one Elliot wears. And I put this on, the hat on, and I looked at myself in the mirror and I started to smile. And I said, now they'll listen. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I realized, so the, the first thing I do is I said, okay. And then I named the character because my wife is Colombian, right? And sure. she's a native, native Spanish speaker. So in her, in, in, in uh, Spanish, El Yid just means the Jew, right? It's just, sure. that's all it means. <laughs> that's all it means. Nothing more, nothing less. So I called him El Yid and I sat down and before I, I, I went on stage, I wrote for six months. I literally pounded it for six months to say to myself, 
if I'm going to do this, I have to know that this is more than, you know, I'm doing more than just jerking myself off that this, this character has legs, that he has something to say that there's a, that there's more than just visual humor in his uh, 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 spirit and his soul. So I created a character who was a, a, a retired kosher chef and uh, cause I'm, I'm a cook. That's my hobby cooking. Mm-hmm. And my son is like a, you know, a guy who works in Michelin starred restaurants as a chef. So mm-hmm. I can fake that. I can fake cooking talking about cooking. Cause I know a lot about it. And, and I created this character who's essentially a combination of my maternal grandfather and the rabbi of the synagogue that I belonged to when we were kids. I took the elements from both of those uh, guys and I put them together. And that's who Elliot is. Mm-hmm. And so I, I wrote for six months. I put like a 10 minute spot together. I called a millennial comedian pal of mine up who was running an open mic at the time. This was like oh, three years ago. And I said, Theo, I need some time. And he said, absolutely. You can have whatever you want. So he put me on one night and I went up on stage and I couldn't fucking believe it. It all worked. It just worked. <laughs> It just, it just, you know, I love being back up on stage, but the material work, the character was believable. People believe me. Like you see me now, Mike, mm-hmm. you see who I really am, right? Right. But if you look at that character, that's not me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. Right, right. Yeah. And, and that's where the character is. I did that show last April, I think. Uh, year ago, no, no, year ago, April. That's right. Uh, Argus's show. And I was all set to do like five more of those. And then things got shut down. Yeah. But yeah. by the time I had done that show, the character had evolved to the point where I was comfortable enough to sit down and just talk to somebody mm-hmm. as the character. So sure. I'm now uh, waiting. I got my first, uh, I, you know, team Moderna. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm waiting for the second one. And then in the interim, I'm going to organize a volleyball match between Pfizer recipients and Moderna recipients <laughs> and, and hit, hit a little spike ball back and forth to each other, mm-hmm. you know? So, so um, I get my second one, March 5th and a couple of weeks after that, you know, and I hope people get them because yeah, yeah, we, we gotta, we gotta take a turn back to sanity, man. We gotta get back. Oh yeah. It. It's been a rough year. It's been a rough year. I, on, believe you know, me. Before before the pandemic, uh, again, I'm a lucky motherfucker, right? Before the pandemic, uh, uh, my wife and I were living half the year in Los Angeles and half the year uh, uh, with her family in Colombia, outside of Bogota. Oh, is so that we, right? Huh. Yeah. So, so we, we'd, we'd come to LA, we'd spend like three months here, and we'd go there for three months, and we'd come back for a couple. So we got back here in February, last February 16th, uh-huh. with already having made plans to go back to Colombia, she was going to go in March, the end of March. And I was going to stay in LA because I had some gigs lined up, some stand-up stuff lined up uh, uh-huh. that I was going to do. I was going to join her like uh, a month later, two months later, you know, uh, and then we would stay for another three or four months and then come back. But uh-huh. everything got shut down, right? It just, it all got uh-huh. shut down. The clubs went down and you know, I've done a couple of those Zoom shows, a few of those, actually. It's not the same. No, no. 
I, I, I went, I went back for that hug, man. I went back for that audience embrace. And mm-hmm. while I love making people laugh and I'll do it, I'm shameless. I'll do it in any, any format, you know, known to man. Uh, um, I, I really personally don't get anything out of it unless it's live people. <laughs> Just- right. I, I totally hear you. I totally hear you. You know, um, I'm, I'm, I had a rough year last year too, you know, Alfred and I, uh, I own a murder mystery company. And, um, he ran, we lost an entire year. We lost an yeah, something else was murdering people, you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah for real. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth. That's the truth. Alfred, where, and I, are you, where are you located? Maryland, Maryland, Alfred, where are you? I'm in, I'm in Maryland also. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Right. That's yep. how we kind of got together mm-hmm. and started working together here. Yeah. Okay. State. We had done a couple of film projects together years ago. Um, Alfred directed me in a couple of things. And then um, I brought Alfred on to do uh, Polar Express and Murder Mysteries last year on the uh, Western Maryland train. Okay. And um, Alfred was set to make his debut in the murder mystery side. And uh, all of a sudden, here comes pandemic. This close. close. This close. (laughs) But um, it'll go, you know, if, if everybody gets sane. Mm-hmm. And does what they're supposed to do for three or four months. Yeah, it'll go away. Yeah, yeah. You know the thing about human being. I, I, I have one of my children living with me right now in in our bubble. My youngest son, the chef, which is, you know, he was all set to open up open up his own restaurant. He had put a deposit down on mm. a building, uh, uh, like five days before everything shut down. So, you know, he's he's with us. What I say is, there's an interesting thing about mankind, the, the human species. Mm-hmm. We bounce, man. We bounce back. No matter what, we bounce. Mm-hmm. We, we have this thing about us that no matter what happens, I mean, this is not as bad as the pandemic of 1918 because we have science now. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, right, right, right. It, it didn't take them a whole lot of time because they were working on these type of vaccines. So they just adapted it to this virus. But this whole messenger RNA thing is a, is a whole new way. You know, I was on a, I did a Zoom show, one of Zoom comedy shows a while ago, at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was me and like uh, three other comedians, three millennial comedians, right? Mm-hmm. So the host said to, to uh, uh, us, he said, listen, I have a question I want each one of you guys to answer. And the question is, if, during this pandemic, you could be stuck uh, living with anyone living or dead. Who would it be? So uh, uh, one of these young guys says, oh, uh, I want to be with uh, uh, Taylor Swift, man. I just want because, you know, she's so hot and, you know, we could just, well, I could be banging Taylor Swift all the time. And, boy, man, you know, I'd get through anything if I could do that. And as the second guy, who would you like to be with? And this guy said something like, oh, I'd like to be with Marissa Tomai because I'm a cougar man. You know, I, she's a cougar and I, she's hot and, you know, could eat spaghetti with her. And, you know, we could just talk about my cousin Vinny and shit and, you know, and just, and, you know, and then he asked the third comedian who really didn't have an answer, but secretly I thought he wanted to be with the second comedian. Uh, <laughs> so, so then, so then he comes to me and he said, Mark, uh, uh, if you had to be locked in, alone with anyone uh, during this pandemic, who would it be? I said, 
Louis Pasteur, motherfucker. <laughs> I said, I can get laid. All right. That's a, that's a fact, but I don't know how to make a vaccine. Uh-huh. <laughs> with the motherfucker who makes the vaccines. Okay? I can get pussy. Pussy's nothing. Make me well. <laughs> you know? Oh. Yeah. That's, Too that's true. Between between how you think at thirty and how you think at seventy, yeah. you're right. It's you're funny, right it's funny because it's true. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Taylor Swift, Marissa Tomei. But no, man, give me Louis Pasteur. <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That's 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 hilarious. That's it hilarious. Is. That's just that's really something. So well. Mark, we, we've appreciated you being with us tonight here on Foul Players Radio. It's been a real pleasure, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface with you. And um, we'd love to have you back sometime yeah, once sure. the book is out and everything. Um, sure. I de- you know, definitely can't wait to read it and uh, have you back on to promote it. And, um, you know, is there anything else you'd like to This is the part of the program where our guests can shamelessly promote Anything as shamelessly as they would like to be with all shamelessness included? Well, you, first of all, you can't have a, you can't be a performer and still cling on to anything resembling shame. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> your life will take that up. You can be cautious and you can have boundaries, mm-hmm. but shame ain't one of them. Right. Um, I, I don't. I just the book uh, will be coming out at some point. Uh, still working on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the TV project, which is just called now the untitled Pittsburgh show. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can get lucky and get that made, I want to tell that story, that seven year, uh, period between me telling my dad, I was going to be in a movie that opened at the Stanley and last mm-hmm. house opening at the Stanley mm-hmm. uh, and all the shit that went on in between that, because it's, it's a real journey from, you know, it's the real interesting journey. Mm-hmm. No, I just, uh, you know, appreciate you guys having me on. Sure. Um, I'm happy to do it. Glad we had some laughs. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful, Mark. And, um, you know, Alfred, thank you again for uh, joining us, too. You know, it's yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure. My I'm pleasure. Gonna send, I'm going to say, Alfred, I'm going to send Mike in an email, my address. If at some point you decide you want to, and my, my email address he has, if at some point I was, that wasn't, I wasn't blowing smoke up your ass, man. If I offered to do that, I'll do it. Uh, uh, Absolutely. I appreciate it. Whatever you want. Like I said, I'll be happy to send a couple of pictures for you and Mike in the same package. Wonderful. Thank well, you, sir. Well, thank it's, you, it's, Mark. It's just fantastic hearing about your career and just, just, you know, having you share those things. It's just like, you can't get that, you know, anywhere besides we are, we are, we are, doing something man. like this. Yes. It's all, that was awesome. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay. Wonderful. Thank you. This is Foul Players Radio. We've been listening to Mark Scheffler with Alfred Guy joining us tonight, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Mark. You bet. Howdy. It's Matt Gwynn here, popping in to let you know about the adventures of the albino rhino. It's a show. Uh, Frank the Giraffe here, my whole host, James Godwin, and myself put on for you guys twice a week. Uh, every Wednesday, we talk to a comedian, and... 
every Friday. We call it Freaky Friday. The show itself is not safe for work, and that freak is definitely a different word. I just don't know what podcast you're going to be listening to this promo on. And I don't want to, uh, you know, start screaming explicatives while you're sitting in your office. If you're lucky enough to have been able to go back to the work that you did before inside of an office or whatever, you know. But we go on a, an adventure twice a week and it's a good time because we get to sit down and talk to some really cool people. Uh, and I enjoy it because, you know, I'm just curious little albino who uh, likes to get to know folks. You know, you can find us a couple ways, actually multiple ways, really, man, there's a lot of different ways to find us. You can find us through our central hub, which is www.albinorhino.me. It's the website find me on. And then, you know, the podcast, you can find the videos on YouTube, search for Adventures of the Albino Rhino, also linkable from our website. You can also find us through Anchor, Breaker. Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Radio Public, and Spotify. That's right. We're on the same place Joe Rogan is. Granted, we're not we're not the Joe Rogan experience, but you know what I mean? We're there. We're there. So give us a listen. Promise you won't be promise you won't be dissatisfied. And enjoy your day. going on minions mike here for misery point radio and you're listening to the coast to coast power hour on the sg network now i know what you're thinking mike what the f is a coast to coast power hour well my uneducated and uninformed friend the coast to coast power hour is a borg-like collective of epic podcasters from epic podcasts that have all come together to discuss the important things in life pop culture current events random awesomeness stuff like that trust me you need this in your life for more information on this show and all the shows on the coast to coast power hour as well as on the sj network reach out to publicist steve joiner at www.s-j-network.com or steve sj network at gmail.com no need to thank me i'm just out here you know changing lives What's Your Effin' Binge is a podcast brought to you by Chris, Anchor, and Spotify. And what we talk to our guests about is what they're currently binge-watching on TV. And uh, what we do is we like to uh, take a different approach. I don't want to know what the name of the show is that they're going to talk about before they come on. I have to actually guess it. So I ask them who, what, when, where, why, and uh, try to figure out what it is that they're watching. A lot of times I'm able to guess it. And sometimes I'm not, and that's fine. That adds to the comedy of the show. We like to bring our guest on, whether they're a model or an actress or a producer or musician, and just let them have a platform to be able to tell everybody what they have coming up next and also entertain everybody with what's worth watching. So I hope everybody tunes in for the next episode of What's Your Effin' Binge. Thanks. It's Chris.